Hello Year 10, it's Mrs Ruggins here and you are listening to the Abbey College PE podcast. Now in this specific podcast episode, we are going to be looking at the Cambridge National Studies in Sport and more specifically the unit RO51 Contemporary Issues in Sport, which is obviously your exam paper, the exam unit that you have been learning about in your lessons. Um, this podcast will be divided into segments or sections and they will cover your learning outcomes for this particular unit. So your learning outcome one is understanding the issues which affect participation in sport. Um, LO2, learning outcome two, know about the role of sport in promoting values. LO3, understanding the importance of hosting major sporting events. And LO4, know about the role of national governing bodies in sport. Now, the idea of this podcast is so that you can use it as revision um, for outside of the lessons. And you can literally just tune in put your headphones in and listen away if this type of revision is more effective for you. Um, So that you are aware of what will happen with the exam, it is a compulsory unit of the course and you will be assessed within a written paper and this is set and marked by the exam board OCR. The paper will last one hour and is worth 60 marks in total. And during that exam, you will be expected to demonstrate your understanding through questions that require analysis and evaluation in particular contexts. And these contexts are for learning objective one, you need to have knowledge and understanding of the different user groups who may participate in sport, the barriers these groups face to participation, solutions to these barriers, the factors which can impact upon the popularity of sport within the UK, how the factors which can impact upon the popularity of sport in the UK relate to specific sporting examples, current trends in the popularity of different sports in the UK and growth of new and emerging sports and activities in the UK. For learning objective two, learners need to have knowledge and understanding of the values which can be promoted through sport, the Olympic and Paralympic movements, other initiatives and events which promote values through sport, the importance of etiquette and sporting behaviour of both performers and spectators, the use of performance enhancing drugs in sport. For learning objective three, learners need to have the knowledge and understanding of the features of major sporting events, the potential the potential benefits and drawbacks of cities and countries hosting major sporting events and the links between potential benefits and drawbacks and legacy. And finally, for learning objective number four, you need to have an understanding and knowledge of what governing bodies in sport do and governing body promotion, development, infrastructure, policies and initiatives, funding and support. So that's literally all the content that um, you have covered in your lessons or are yet to cover in your lessons for the exam unit, the contemporary issues in sport. So without further ado, let's move on to our first segment, which will be looking at learning objective number one, understanding the issues which affect participation in sport. Here we go then, learning objective one, understanding the issues which affect participation in sport. So the different user groups who may participate in sports are the following, ethnic minorities, 
retired people or people over 50 years old, families with young children, single parents, children, teenagers, disabled, the unemployed or the economically disadvantaged, and working singles and couples. So a wide range of people perform sporting activities. However, many groups face barriers or factors that may make participation particularly difficult. Those facing particular barriers to their participation can be categorized like I've just done. And these are what we call the user groups. So you have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine user groups, which you need to remember for the exam. So let's look at them in a little bit more detail. Ethnic minorities. So these are deemed to be a group within a community that is of a different culture, religion or nationality from the main group in that area. Although Britain is a multicultural society, some ethnicities may be much more in the minority within certain areas. And this is what makes them an ethnic minority. Retired people or people over the age of 50. These people may face certain barriers to participation. Although you can retire at any age, most retired people receive the state pension. The state pension age will increase for both men and women in future years and it will be age 66 by October 2020. The government is planning further increases that will raise the state pension age from 66 to 67 between 2026 and 2028. So these are how we categorise um, retired people, basically. So next one is families with young children. These families face certain barriers to participation, largely due to the time pressures involved in looking after and raising a young family. Single parents are classed as any adult who is bringing up a child or children on their own. In 2018, nearly a quarter of all families in the UK were single parent families. Our next user group is children. Technically speaking, a child is deemed to be any human being under the age of 18 years old, unless the law in a country permits otherwise. We then have teenagers. Teenagers are classed as human beings between the ages of 13 and 19. Disabled people, these are people with disabilities and they could be physical or mental and they are conditions that affect their ability to carry out movement, use different senses or undertake everyday activities. There are many classifications of disability. These could include visual impairment, deafness or hard of hearing, mental health conditions, intellectual disability, acquired brain injury, autism spectrum disorder and physical disability. We also have the unemployed people or economically disadvantaged and these are people with no employment, people who simply do not have enough income or money to meet basic needs and therefore qualify for state organised benefits. So that's where you get money from the state. And our final user group are working singles and couples. Now, these people face the pressures and demands of the world of work and often struggle to find time to take part in physical activity. So those are your user groups. We will now move on um, to look at the possible barriers which affect participation in sport. My advice at this point um, is to pause, listen again, so rewind and listen again if you didn't quite take in everything I've just said. Um, maybe make some notes for your revision or if you are better off just listening through this podcast then absolutely do that this is the beauty of the podcast is that you are able to listen go through it at your own convenience and in your own time so let's look at the possible barriers which affect participation in sport 
So many of the possible barriers to participation are common to all user groups, and these can include the following. Lack of time, not having enough time to take part in the amount of physical activity they, miss, they wish they could do. Commitments, limited to lack of time as prior or compulsory commitments may mean that time for physical activity may be limited. Lack of disposable income, someone might not be able to afford to join in a sports activity. For instance, you normally need to be a member of a golf club in order to play golf. Membership can cost hundreds or thousands of pounds per year, which means some groups of people simply cannot afford to play that sport. Lack of access. Access refers to being able to get to or into a facility. Therefore, if a particular group finds it difficult to access a facility, it may prove difficult to take part in physical activity. Lack of role models. Role models are well-known people who others aspire to be like. If a particular group has few or no sporting role models, they will not be inspired to try to emulate these people. Lack of provision. Provision refers to what is provided. If sporting activity is not provided for a particular group, clearly they cannot take part. Lack of awareness. Awareness refers to how aware or knowledgeable a particular group is about something. If a particular group has little or no awareness of what is available, then they will not know where or when they can take part. Stereotyping. A simplistic and sometimes unjust viewpoint of our idea about a particular type of person. Sometimes stereotyping of particular groups may demotivate them or lower their self-esteem. The portrayal of gender issues in the sport media may per per perpetuate sorry, stereotypes. For instance, that some sports are male or masculine, or there's some sports that females supposedly shouldn't be playing. Now we're going to look at, so there's, there's all your barriers, so your possible barriers which affect participation in sport. And what I'm going to move on to next is looking at the different user groups that I listed at the beginning of this part of the podcast um, and seeing what barriers those specific user groups may face. So again, here's a pause point if you want to rewind and go back over the possible barriers. So let's look at ethnic minorities first. So ethnic minorities can face many barriers to participation. These could be lack of awareness of information, cultural norms and lack of provision, a lack of role models, lack of coaches of that ethnic group, fear of discrimination and racism, language barriers or religious beliefs. Retired people or people over the age of 50 um, could face the following possible barriers. Not exercised or participated in a long time, a lack of fitness, increased likelihood of illness, no or limited access to transport, they cannot afford the cost of participation, discrimination from others, if still working they may have work commitments, they may have family commitments, a lack of self-esteem or low confidence. Families with young children, they may face childcare costs, family commitments, limited childcare, no crush or childcare at the sports centre they wish to go, transport issues, a lack of time, appeal of alternative le leisure activities, or their partner may wish to exercise. Single parents face the possible barriers of childcare costs, parenting commitments, limited childcare, transport issues, lack of time, appeal of alternative leisure activities again, and lack of role models. 
Children face many barriers to participation, some of which are similar to teenagers. And these are lack of role models, lack of awareness, lack of money or disposable income, lack of access to facilities or transport, a lack of appropriate activity options, or a negative attitude towards participation, poor body image or lack of confidence, peer pressure to undertake alternative, more sedentary activities. So sedentary means, um, it's another word for lazy actually, um, not participating in any sort of physical activity. Um, They could also face distractions, such as their mobile phones, um, or they might have school or work commitments. Teenagers are very similar. They face many specific barriers um, similar to children. So again, lack of role models to inspire the user group, lack of awareness that suitable activities for teachers exist, uh, for teenagers exist, sorry, not teachers. Lack of money or disposable income, lack of access to facilities and transport, lack of appropriate activity options, a negative attitude towards participation, poor body image, peer pressure to undertake alternative or more sedentary activities, and again, school and work commitments. Disabled people or disabled user groups, they face um, barriers such as lack of access to specialist facilities, a lack of access to specialist equipment, a lack of transport, very few role models, expense of equipment on participation charges, no suitable programmed sessions, Um, lack of mobility, not physically able to actually do the sport, discrimination and views of others, a lack of specialist staff to help them, and a lack of confidence and self-esteem. The unemployed and economically disadvantaged, um, they face the following barriers, the lack of disposable income, lack of transport, other priorities for use of leisure time, cost of equipment and lack of awareness. You've then got the um, working singles and couples and their barriers to participation in sports are the following. Their work commitment, lack of time, too tired because they're working too much, unsuitable timing of activities, lack of provision, transport issues and appeal of alternative leisure activities. Now, despite there being some barriers to participations, um, to participation in sports, sorry, there are always going to be solutions. So here are the um, possible solutions to barriers which affect, affect participation in sport that you need to know of for the exam. So. Solutions to barriers faced by the various user groups are often very similar and can be solutions for many of the user groups. Some of the common solutions that could be put into action in an attempt to eradicate the barriers for the different user groups are the following. Promoting positive role models to aspire to. Increased media coverage of the user group. Improved accessibility to be able to access the activity. Increased provision of suitable activities. Subsidised costs to gain access, use transport or join as a member. Targeted campaigns to engage the user groups. Um, So those are your solutions to barriers. So have a little think about those solutions. You can pause here, rewind and listen back and maybe try and pinpoint where those solutions um, or which specific barriers those solutions might link to. Okay. At this point, um, we can have a pause. We've looked at the user groups. We've looked at the barriers to participation and we've just identified some solutions. Okay. 
now we are going to um, press forward and look at the factors which can impact upon the popularity of sport in the UK. The sport is an extremely popular part of the culture within the UK and there are many factors which can impact upon the popularity of a sport. We are going to look at um, providing specific examples of how these factors have affected the popularity of sport in the UK. So, what you need to remember here um, are the different factors and I'm going to I think what I'm going to do is list them first and then look at them in detail afterwards so we are looking at um, participation provision the environment spectatorship and media coverage success for both teams and individuals role models and acceptability okay and what I will do now is have um, have a little discussion with you about those in more detail so here we go participation current trends and growth of new activities as of march 2018 sport england's active lives survey figures showed that 61.8 percent of the population within england are active they carry out at least 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise per week 25.7 percent are inactive meaning they do less than 30 minutes of physical activity per week Walking for leisure was the most popular activity within the survey, with participation rates in rock climbing, bouldering and outdoor and adventurous activities also increasing. Fitness-based activities such as spinning, zumba and gym sessions remained very popular too. Football has widespread mass participation due to strong infrastructure being in place and encouragement of team sports in schools. Somewhat surprisingly, participation rates in cycling and swimming were down in the 2018 Active Lives survey. Emerging sports are deemed to be new sports that have, been, that have enjoyed increased participation in the UK in recent years. So new or emerging activities have shown some popularity, for example, parkour, ultimate frisbee and handball have all seen increased participation rates. Now, let's look at some of the other factors. We've got provision. Provision of activities varies in the UK. Quite simply, people cannot participate if there is little or no provision available. Although there are many leisure centres and grass pitches, the provision of specialist facilities does vary. Tennis lacks easily accessible courts, impacting on base level participation, as indoor courts can be expensive and require membership. There are only six indoor velodromes for cycling in the UK, although there are many outdoor versions. So this could have an impact on how popular those sports are. Environment and climate can also have an impact upon the popularity of sports. The inclement weather within the UK can impact upon how much participation takes place. For example, there are some indoor snow areas within the UK, but regular involvement in uh, snow sports for some people requires either frequent trips abroad or the use of artificial slopes. The provision of all weather pitches has improved for sports such as hockey, although versions also exist for football and rugby. However, Britain's inclement weather can pose a barrier to participation for some who do not like getting cold or wet. We are often known as the fair weather sports people. Spectatorship and media coverage 
um, is also a factor impacting popularity of sports. So the number of spectators viewing sports and being inspired to take a part affects participation rates. Some sports channels are available 24-7 and terrestrial and uh, subscription channels allow sports to be easily watched. However, the availability of sports to watch is variable and some no longer free to view. The BBC has a deal to show Wimbledon tennis for free until 2024 at least. Sky and the BBC will share a five-year deal to show the Ashes, the cricket, from 2020. So that should hopefully improve the popularity of cricket. And the Masters Golf Tournament can only be watched live on subscription TV, with it holding a three-year deal which expires in 2021. Um, obviously, this is before this time now, um, but it's in the it's in the Cambridge National Book, so we need to follow this guidance for our exam. The number of spectators at home clearly correlates to the sports which receive media coverage. Sports such as netball and women's football now receive more media coverage, whereas sports such as badminton and squash receive very little. And again, this will impact upon the popularity of those sports. Another factor that impacts upon popularity is the success of teams and individuals. So the expression success breeds success can certainly be applied to sport and participation rates. As sporting success is achieved, people are generally inspired to take part. As Britain does well in major sporting events, there tends to be an increase in participation in the sports in which has, um, success has taken place. Netball success at the Commonwealth Games in 2018 resulted in an increase in netball participation throughout the rest of the year. The success of British cycling in recent Olympics has inspired many to take part, including inspirational um, inspiration from gold medal winners such as Sir Chris Hoy and Sir Bradley Wiggins. Role models nicely links on from that is another factor which um, increases popularity in sports. Although many sport performers can be said to be positive role models for future generations, it can also be argued that certain sports or user groups lack role models. Many people would argue that there is a lack of role models in sports for user groups including women, ethnic groups and those with a disability. The success of England's women in the Cricket World Cup in 2017 inspired many girls to take up the sport for the first time. And then finally, our final factor affecting uh, the popularity of sport is acceptability. Culture tends to dictate what is deemed to be an acceptable or an unacceptable sport. Certain sports within the UK have resulted in some people voicing concerns. For example, many people believe that horse racing is cruel to the animals involved due to the use of a whip. Many believe that boxing should be banned due to the potential for injury and the history of fatalities. And many believe that that heading in football should be banned due to some research about potential brain injuries. So there you have it. That is LO1, the learning objective one, um, in a nutshell. So just to remind you, learning objective one is focusing on understanding the issues which affect participation in sport. We've looked at the user groups. We have looked at the barriers that, that, those, that those user groups may face. We've let, looked at potential solutions to those barriers and we've also looked at the factors which can impact upon the popularity of sports in the UK. So there's four 
parts to LA1 that you really need to be clued upon and confident with. And if you aren't, then please feel free to rewind this podcast, go back, listen as much as you need to, as many times as your day, as as many as many times in the day, sorry, as you need to, as frequently as it takes for it to really embed in your memory so that you feel confident walking into that exam. And that's it for this segment. Our next segment will be looking at learning outcome two, knowing about the role of sport in promoting values. Okay, so welcome to your next segment of the podcast, um, all about learning outcome number two, knowing about the role of sport in promoting values. So first of all, we are going to look at the values which can be promoted through sports. We're then going to have a look at the Olympic and Paralympic movements in a little bit more detail. We'll then look at some initiatives and events which promote values through sports. The importance of etiquette and sporting behaviour of both performers and spectators will be looked at in a little bit more detail. And finally, the use of performance enhancing drugs in sports. We'll also have a look at that. And that shapes learning outcome two, knowing about the role of sports in promoting values. So let's start with the values which can be promoted through sports. We have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven values that you need to remember. Team spirit, fair play, citizenship, tolerance and respect, inclusion, national pride and excellence. Team spirit. So sports can allow performers to gain the feeling of pride and loyalty that exists among the members of a team which makes them want their team to do well or be the best. For example, having extreme pride in each other's performance that contributes to the overall team performance. Fair play. Some sports can allow performance to show fair play. This is appropriate, polite behaviour which involves respect for fellow competitors and adhering to the rules and does not involve illegal doping. For example, respecting an opponent's right to take their time when putting in golf. Citizenship. Sports can allow performers to act as good citizens. In other words, they act in a way that citizens of a country should. This can involve getting involved in the local community through sports tolerance and respect. Sport can help performers to tolerate and understand others and to show respect to opponents. This can involve a willingness to respect the differences of others. For example, respecting different cultures and countries through international sports and respecting their national anthem. Inclusion. Sport can allow people to be included within teams, competitions or structures. This can include campaigns to encourage underrepresented underrepresented social groups to get involved in sport. National pride. Sport can help to develop a sense of pride in the name, culture and practices of a country. Such national pride can be shown when supporters and performers unite behind their country in international events. For example, during the national anthem or wearing certain colours. And the final value, excellence. Sport can help to encourage and develop excellence. In other words, striving to be the best that you can. For example, aiming to constantly improve in your favourite sports. Now, all of those values are promoted through sports. 
and especially through the Olympic and Paralympic movements. So the Paralympics are games for people with a disability, which run in parallel with the Olympic Games. They are both held once every four years in the same host city. Both Olympic and Paralympic movements aim to represent similar core values. And we'll talk about the values in a little bit more detail in just a second. But first of all, I need to talk about the creed, the Olympic creed, which is a message. So it is the Olympic creed has appeared on the scoreboard at every modern Olympic Games. The message, which was written by the founder of the modern Olympics, Baron Pierre de Coubertin, reads, and this is in quotation marks, the most important thing in the Olympic Games is not to win, but to take part. Just as the most important thing in life is not the triumph, but the struggle. The essential thing is not to have conquered, but to have fought well. So the Olympic Creed is designed to provide a moral message about taking part, emphasising that life is similar to sports in that there will be struggles, but what is important is that you try your best to deal with these struggles. You then have the Olympic symbol, which you also need to know about, which is obviously the um, five rings and they're blue, yellow, black, green and red. So the Olympic symbol includes five interlocking rings to uh, represent the union of the five continents of the world which take part. The symbol is synonymous with all aspects of the Olympics and Paralympics and reminds everyone that the brand logo for the sporting event involves all areas of the world. Now let's have a look at these values then. So the Olympic and Paralympic values, they have subtle differences, but very similar underlying meanings. They can, however, be seen as one set of Olympic values, which include both the Olympic and Paralympic values. So there are three Olympic values, and these are friendship, respect, and excellence. And And then along with the four Paralympic values, determination, inspiration, courage, and equality. And the values can be seen as universal in that they apply to the games as a whole, as well as to aspects of education and life. Now, let's move on. This is a pause point for you. So if you want to go back and be real, uh, really certain about the values which can be promoted through sports and about the Olympic and Paralympic movements, then please do rewind at this point and go back over them. Um, and if not, we are going to um, press ahead and move on to other initiatives and events which promote values through sports. Okay, so other initiatives and events which promote the values through sports. So initiatives and campaigns can be used to instill certain values for those taking part. Often the campaigns try to accentuate the overall good that can be gained by taking part. And some examples are the following. FIFA's Football for Hope campaign. This programme started in 2005 as a collaboration between FIFA and Street Football World. The programme funds not-for-profit organisations to encourage social projects for disadvantaged people using football as a focal point. We then have ECB's Chance to Shine programme. Since 2005, this programme has aimed to ensure that cricket continues to be played in state schools. However, this charity-run programme also aims to bring cricket to thousands of inner-city children who may not have been given the chance to play it. It is intended that the initiative will help develop social cohesion, teamwork, respect and also reduce antisocial behaviour. One that we're probably all very familiar with is Sport Relief. This is an annual public campaign that encourages people to get active and raise money for vulnerable people across the UK and overseas. 
It is intended that the money is used to help those people live happier, healthier, safer lives. Many people take part in um, active events in order to raise sponsorship and funds for the sport relief campaign. This can include sponsored runs, fitness classes, or even following a designated program like the Couch to 5K. You then have the Premier League's Creating Chances initiative, which works within the English communities to address five key areas, and that is education, international initiatives, health, community cohesion and participation. The Premier League and its clubs work in partnership with an array of professional, political, business and charitable organisations, which then aim to enhance the lives of people all over England. Um, And a final um, initiative or campaign that you should be aware of is the £10 million Sport England scheme to increase participation in sport by women. Um, And that was the This Girl Can programme. And it's funded by the National Lottery and is developed by Sport England. Aims to get women active through normalising the idea that women sweat, go red and do wobble at times. It aims to allow women to overcome the fear of being judged and make the choice to take part in physical activity, irrespective of shape, size or ability. So... Sports initiatives to break down barriers. There are many initiatives to play in place and the idea of them is to break down barriers. For example, you've got the initiative Kick It Out and that is to break down the barrier of racism. You've got the Respect Campaign, which um, aims to break down the barrier of abuse of referees in football. Transforming British Tennis Together is another initiative aiming to break down the barrier of cost and accessibility of tennis. And another initiative you could be aware of is Back to Netball, aiming to break down the barrier of age. Another pause point here, if you want to go back through the initiatives and events which promote values through sports, then please do rewind at this point and go back. If not, we're going to press ahead to the importance of etiquette and sporting behaviour of both performers and spectators. So, etiquette, it's the unwritten rules concerning player and behaviour. And sporting behaviour means behaving in a way that shows sportsmanship, involves appropriate, polite and fair behaviour while participating in a sport event. So etiquette is a major part of sports performance. Etiquette includes the unwritten rules concerning player behaviour. Examples of etiquette in sport include kicking the ball out of play in football when someone is injured. The ball is then returned to that team. Or not walking across the line of someone else's put in golf. Sporting behaviour is behaving in a way that shows sportsmanship. This involves appropriate, polite and fair behaviour while participating in a sporting event. The vast majority of people involved in sport encourage positive sporting behaviour as being the acceptable norm. Now, the reasons for observing etiquette and sporting behaviour are as follows. And these are to adopt positive sporting um, behaviours so that performers um, can a play safely um but that everyone is sort of reading from the same page and acting in the same way so these are the reasons so performing in a fair way promoting positive values ensuring the safety of themselves and other performers being respectful to those in their own team and the opposition and acting as a positive role model for children then we move on to some more definitions that you need to be aware of so sportsmanship Appropriate, fair and polite behaviour, also known as sportsmanship, can be seen in many sporting examples. Being gracious and respectful when winning or losing. Clapping an opposition's goal in netball. Giving a small put to your opponent in match play golf. Shaking hands before and after a game. They are all examples of sportsmanship. 
You've then got the opposite, gamesmanship. This is where performers do not show sporting behaviour and sometimes make use of gamesmanship. And this is when the performer bends the rules. They make use of dubious methods that are not strictly outside the rules to gain an advantage. Examples of gamesmanship include taking a long time to collect the ball to waste time in football, retying shoelaces when an opponent is about to serve in tennis with the intention of putting them off. Grunting when playing a tennis shot may also put the opponent off. You've also then got spectator etiquette. And this is a um, similar way that performers should show etiquette. It can be argued that spectators also have unwritten rules to follow that mean they behave in an appropriately sporting way. And examples of this would be being quiet during rallies at tennis tournaments, remaining quiet during playing snooker, respecting an opponent's national anthem, staying quiet when a rugby player kicks a conversion, and staying quiet for the start of an athletics race. It's very difficult to control spectator behaviour and many spectators do not follow sporting etiquette. Um, it's quite common for NBA basketball spectators to deliberately put opposition players off when shooting free, for, uh, free throws and partisan crowds at football can be very unsporting towards the opposition team. However, there are many examples of spectator etiquette that can be seen in different sports. Golf crowds tend to be very respectful and quiet when players are taking their shots and crowds at tennis tend to be quiet when players are serving. Um, and here's another pause point. So those were all um, discussing the importance of etiquette and sporting behaviour of both performers and spectators. So you've, things, you've got things to remember here. You've got definitions for etiquette and sporting behaviour reasons for why people observe etiquette and sporting behavior you've then got to know the definitions and give examples of sportsmanship gamesmanship and spectator etiquette and that brings us to our last part of learning outcome number two which is knowing all about the role of sport in promoting values and we are going to look at peds and they are performance enhancing drugs in sports Sporting authorities continue their fight to eradicate the use of prohibited performance-enhancing drugs. Unfortunately, many P uh, PEDs, or performance-enhancing drugs, are still in existence within the world of sport, and performers still get caught on a regular basis. Reasons why PEDs are used. So performers who choose to take prohibited performance-enhancing drugs do so for a variety of reasons. Okay, This could be pressure to succeed as an individual, pressure to succeed as a nation, improve, to basically improve their performance to be the best, um, to give them improved strength, stamina or power, improved recovery time, an increased ability to train more, to mask pain if they've got an injury but want to compete, to lose weight, um, particularly jockeys and horse riders they they like to obviously be quite small and light um so they take a performance and well not all of them obviously but some may take performance enhancing drugs to lose weight um, and also the belief that others are taking drugs too so why can't they so they are all reasons why peds are used now the reasons against using peds are the following other than the fact that it's frowned upon um they actually may suffer from long-term ill health they can suffer harsh consequences when found guilty. They obviously have an unfair advantage over others. It's just generally immoral to take PEDs and cheat. There's an over-reliance and an addiction may be the result. And reputational damage after being caught. When we um, 
cover this or when we have covered this in our lessons i'll have talked through um, a couple of sporting history examples of athletes who took peds and as a result it damaged their reputation all their sponsorship deals were stripped from them any medals any winnings were stripped from them um, so it does have really harsh consequences there's something called the world anti-doping agency the wada w-a-d-a and that was founded in 1999 and it aims to ensure a drug-free sporting environment all over the world it's funded by sports organizations and governments with its main activities being scientific research education development of anti-doping methods and monitoring of the world anti-doping code within this there's something called the whereabouts rule and that involves information that has to be provided to the authorities by select groups of elite athletes. They must supply information to the Information Sport Federation or the National Anti-Doping Organisation. That includes them in their respective registered testing pool. These athletes must supply information about their location, accommodation being used, a 60-minute time slot every day when the athlete must be in a set place for testing, they must know about their training schedule and their competition schedule and the testing methods that are used to try and catch those using um, peds out and these athletes can be tested at any time and in any place and they are often required to attend a special doping control station and these testing methods could be blood or urine samples and occasionally hair or nail samples too the normal procedure for testing involves um, the athlete is notified by a doping control officer or a chaperone that they have been selected for testing the athlete reports for testing at the stated time they are accompanied at all times by the chaperone a collection vessel is then selected and some athletes may be required to provide urine and blood um, the sample is provided and witnessed a same gender witness must have an um, unobstructed viewpoint of the urine being passed for example to make sure it's the athlete's urine they are putting in the test pot. The samples are divided, sealing the sample, the samples are tested in the laboratory, and then the result is recorded and certified and the athlete is told of any problems with the samples. So there is a constant fight to make sport doping free. So current initiatives are in place to do this. This involves cross-organisation work between the World Anti-Doping Agency, governing bodies, sports organising bodies and other partners. And this, uh, this work has resulted in some high-profile bans and sanctions. Here's some examples of that. So we have the, the, oh my goodness me, I'm getting tongue-tied, sorry, the Russian Olympic Committee. They were suspended in December 2017 due to evidence of state-sponsored doping, resulting in 43 Russians being given life bans from the Olympics. State-sponsored doping is a wide-scale doping program organised and supported by government agencies. However, in February 2018, the Court of Arbitration in Sports, the CAS, ruled that there was insufficient evidence to prove beyond doubt that 28 of the 43 Russians had committed an anti-doping rule violation. So their ban was actually dropped. Drug offences by elite performance uh, performers. Here's, I'm going to list out just some examples, like I said I would earlier. And there have been many high-profile drug offences by elite performers. So, in 1988, Ben Johnson, who was a 100-metre and 200-metre sprinter, was banned for taking anabolic steroids. 
in 2001 and 2006, Justin Gatlin, another 100 metre and 200 metre sprinter, was banned for taking the PED amphetamines. Dwayne Chambers in 2003, and again, 100 metre and 200 metre sprinter, was also banned for taking anabolic steroids. We have David Miller, who is a cyclist in 2004. He was banned for taking EPO and Kennecourt. In 2012, Alberto Contador, who is also a cyclist, was banned for taking clenbuterol. Excuse my pronunciation of some of these. Maria Sharapova in tennis in 2016 was banned for taking meldonium. And in 2017, Nesta Carter, who was a sprinter, um, was also banned for taking, now this is a long and confusing word, methylhexanamine. And the IOC removed Usain Bolt's 2008 gold medal for the four times 100 meter, which no longer counted due to Nesta Carter's doping violations. So, you know, if, if, you, if you're an athlete who is competing not only as an individual, but in team situations, you also run the risk, if you're taking PEDs, of letting down your other teammates. So the impact of drug taking on the reputation, uh, the reputation of sports. Clearly, doping scandals in sport are not positive for anyone involved. The damage can be significant and long-lasting. The reputation of the sport could be tarnished. Spectators may question whether they are viewing clean or fair sports. There may be mistrust of results. And when there are several cases, for example, in sprinting and the Tour de France, spectators become sceptical about the whole field of performers and the credibility of the sport. There's some ethical issues relating to drug taking. So ethics are the moral principles that govern a person's behaviour. That's what ethics means. And taking prohibited performance enhancing drugs is generally deemed immoral and unethical. There are many ethical variables to be considered, however. Should doping simply be classed as cheating? Is it fair that some performers appear to get away with doping whereas others don't? Is it fair that illegal drug lists does not include all drugs and there are some grey areas about what is and what isn't acceptable? Should there be a stronger distinction between use of performance enhancing drugs and recreational drugs? And should those that are caught be allowed to compete again? So, there we have it. There is your learning outcome too, knowing about the role of sport in promoting values. So here, you should be able to describe the three values that can be um, Describe the values that can be promoted through sport. You should be able to talk about the Olympic and Paralympic movement. You should be able to define sportsmanship, gamesmanship, and talk about spectator etiquette and just general etiquette and sporting behaviour. And you should also be able to discuss the potential benefits and negative consequences of deciding to take prohibited performance enhancing drugs. And that's it for this segment. We will move on to learning outcome three, which is understanding the importance of hosting major sporting events in the next uh, segment. But again, like always, if you're not too confident on everything I've covered so far, feel free to pause the podcast, rewind and listen back as much as you need to. Okay, so here we are looking at learning outcome three, understanding the importance of hosting major sporting events. In this section, we'll be looking at the features of major sporting events. 
we will be looking at the potential benefits and drawbacks of cities and countries hosting major sporting events. We'll be looking at the links between potential benefits and drawbacks and legacy. Um, And that is it for learning outcome number three. So without further ado, the features of major sporting events. So major sporting events involve an incredible amount of organisation and follow certain protocols and traditions. Regularity and scheduling is one of these. So major sporting events are scheduled at a certain time and with a degree of regularity. One-off events are simply held once in a certain place or at a certain time. For example, when a city hosts the Olympic or Paralympic Games, it may be a one-off for that city or a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for a generation. For example, Sweden has only ever hosted the Olympics once in 1912. So they are one-off events. You then have regular events. So most major sporting events are regular in that they are held annually, every year, or biannually every second year or every four years. Examples include, so for annual events, the UEFA Champions League final is an annual event, which a city could host more than once in a relatively short period of time, but as a rule, it is shared around. And the uh, 2018 final was in Kiev for the first time that Ukraine had hosted the event. Biannual, the Ryder Cup in golf, that's an event between the United States and Europe that takes place every two years. This event alternates between a US and a European golf venue. And every four years, you have the Olympics and the Paralympics, and also the Football and Rugby World Cups are held every four years too. And the venues for all of these major events change each time. You then have something called regular and recurring events. So regular and recurring events. Many sporting events are regular and recurring. Regular in that they happen at set uh, set intervals and recurring in that they are periodically repeated in the same place. Examples include many Formula One Grand Prix events are annual and contracted to be at the same venue for a period of years in the host country, for example, Monaco. Wimbledon is an annual tennis tournament always held at the All England Club in Wimbledon, South London. You then have the Masters Golf Tournament, which is held every April at the Augusta National Golf Club in Georgia, United States. And the FA Cup final happens at Wembley every May. So that was regularity and scheduling. So that's one feature of a major sporting event. A second feature is the international element to the event. So many major sporting events have an international element in that the performers involved come from different countries. As the competitors come from different countries, so do the spectators and the media attention. Truly international events are broadcast worldwide and events with an international element include the Olympic Games, the Paralympic Games, the FIFA World Cup, the Rugby World Cup, Wimbledon Tennis, the Netball World Cup, the Rugby Union Heineken Cup, the Rugby Union Heineken Cup, sorry, the World Snooker Championships. You then have a third feature, which is the level of investment in the event. At this stage, I need to apologise. I have got very bad hay fever, which is why I sound very bummed up. Um, So I apologise for that, but hopefully I'm clear enough for you to understand. So the features of major sporting events. We've looked at regularity and scheduling. We've looked at international element to the event. We're now going to look at the level of investment in the event. So major sporting events require a significant amount of investment to be a success. The investment costs can be millions or even billions of dollars for the largest worldwide event. A fourth feature is required investment in the event. So the money that is required to put on a major sporting event does vary. For example, the FIFA World Cup involves significant costs. 
um, and the cost of hosting the Olympic, Paralympic and Winter Olympic Games has gone up consistently since 1960. Another feature is funding, which may be attracted for the event. So up to 70% of the funding for the uh, Football World Cup comes from public revenue. This includes general taxation. Sponsors also play a huge role. Sponsorship can be deemed as the act of supporting an event, activity, person or organisation through the provision of finance, products or merchandise. Approximate costs for sponsors to act as an official partner of the World Cup vary from 10 to $25 million. There are currently seven official partners, including Coca-Cola, Adidas and Visa. For the 2012 London Olympics, taxpayers from all over the UK were responsible for covering $4.4 billion of the costs. In 2016, Heineken signed a $227 million deal to be the official beer partner of Formula One. Sponsorship is a crucial element of funding to ensure that major sporting events are financially viable. Companies such as Slazenger, Robinsons, Ralph Lauren and Stella Artois pay significant funds to Wimbledon to be an official sponsor of the tennis. Our next feature is the potential legacy of the event. The Olympic Games is an example of an event for which the legacy is extremely important. A legacy deals with the long-term effects and positive impacts of having hosted the Games for the country, its people and its provision of sporting activities. The International Olympic Committee states that Olympic legacy is the result of a vision. It encompasses all the tangible and intangible long-term benefits initiated or accelerated by the the hosting of the Olympic Games or sport events for people, cities, territories and the Olympic movement. You then have social legacy of the event. So one of the seven main legacy expectations of the Olympic Games is social development through sport. Social development can be deemed to be improving the well-being and interaction of those in the society so that they feel safe and secure, reach their potential and communicate effectively with others. Social development as part of a legacy tends to involve encouraging grassroots participation products and engagement programmes. For example, in Barcelona after the Olympics, there have been city-wide sports uh, activities for children who have suffered economic hardship or social exclusion. The IOC specifically states that social development through sport should include health and well-being benefits from the practice of recreational sport and physical activity, Olympic values and sport as a tool for education, peace building and international cooperation, gender and other inclusiveness. And the final feature of hosting a major sporting event is the economic legacy of the event. The expectations of the International Olympic Committee include an economic legacy in that there should be an economic benefit for the host country, host city and its people and this can be achieved in many ways. It can increase awareness about the city around the world, it increases tourism, has long-term investments in the city and the business and economic development within the city and country will improve too. So there you have it, there are your main features of sport, uh, of major sporting events. So. Number one, regularity and scheduling. Number two, the international element. Number three, level of investment in the event. Number four, required investment in the event. Number five, funding which may be attracted for the event. Number six, potential legacy of the event. Number seven, the social legacy of the event. And number eight, the economic legacy of the event. So... There was a pause point for you there if you need to go back and look at the different features. But we're going to press forward and move on to the uh, the potential benefits and drawbacks of cities, countries 
um, and anyone else that is hosting major sporting events. So here are the benefits. Benefits may be gained from winning a bid to become the host city or country for a major sporting event. So investment will be used to develop and improve the transport uh, transport system within the city. There will be an increase in tourism. There will be some commercial benefits. For example, the city will receive money from sponsors. There's external investment, which would not otherwise have been attracted, will come into the city. For example, the investment in the city's infrastructure, transport and sporting stadiums. Participation may increase. Jobs will be created to build, manage and administer the new infrastructure, stadiums and social facilities. Sports facilities will be improved. The major sporting event will raise the status of the country. And the morale of the country is often raised as the population shows pride in their city, country and athletes. However, there are also many drawbacks which can result from hosting uh, major events. The bidding process to host a major sporting event can be very expensive. Event hosting costs may be more than the event raises in revenue, therefore the city makes a loss. Sometimes facilities can end up not being used after the event. If the event is run poorly, it can have a negative impact on the status of the country. Hosting the event may only help to promote one or few areas of sport. Arguments may focus on how funding should be spent. Legacy demands may be hard to meet. And the the public may resent the use of taxation, feeling that their individual part of the country is not gaining from an event that might not be that might be located hundreds of miles away from their homes. Now we look here at the links between potential benefits and drawbacks, and there are three that you need to know. Developing facilities is one, infrastructure and tourism. So there are some clear links between the potential benefits and drawbacks of hosting a major sporting event and the legacy it should provide. Some of these benefits are relevant to more than one area of the legacy requirements. Number one, developing facilities. Although this can be very costly, it can allow future generations to make use of the facilities and enhance opportunities for people to take part in social activities. Therefore, it is increasing sports development and social development. Number two, infrastructure. Although the cost of improving transport can be costly, it can be built and run in a more environmentally friendly way, environment enhancement, and allow the population to travel to take part in sport, sport development and social development. And finally, tourism. It is costly to cater for the number of direct and indirect tourists, but there will be an increase in income to the city, economic value. And the shop window effect will help others to appreciate the cultural value that that city offers cultural development and that is all you need to know for learning outcome number three which was understanding the importance of hosting major sporting events so a quick recap we have looked at the features of major sporting events we have looked at the potential benefits and drawbacks of cities and countries hosting major sporting events and then we've looked at the links between potential benefits and drawbacks and legacy. So what you should be able to at this stage is to state the features of a major sporting event, describe why sponsorship is so important when financing a sporting event, describe three aspects of the legacy requirements when bidding to host an Olympic Games, state benefits of hosting a major sporting event, and state drawbacks of hosting a major sporting event. And like always, pause it here, rewind if you need to go back. If not, let's move forward to our final segment, which is learning outcome four, know about the role of national governing bodies in sport.
And so here we are, the final segment of the podcast, Learning Objective 4, Know About the Role of National Governing Bodies in Sport. So what national governing bodies in sport do? National governing bodies, or NGBs, are independent bodies that have responsibility to govern and manage their sport within a country. There is generally an NGB for each and every sport. Recognising an NGB is the role of all five sport councils, Sport England, Sport Scotland, Sport Wales, Sport Northern Ireland and UK Sport. Collectively, they can decide if an NGB is viable. The five sport councils need to decide if the NGB applying to them even represents a sport, as the application will come from an independent body. If the independent body applying only represents those playing the sport in one country, then they need only apply to the sports council within that country. For any NGB, national governing body, to be recognised, it must first be established if they have a reasonable level of importance or preeminence in that sport. That is, they appear to be the recognised body for that sport. If their application is robust enough, they will be recognised as a fully-fledged national governing body. So let's look at promotion. So one major role of any recognised NGB is to promote their sport. Promotion involves any type of marketing used to persuade a targeted audience. To satisfy all of their targets and aspirations, an NGB must first of all promote the sport and ensure that it is gaining publicity. It is only when people know and understand the sport that knowledge of and participation in that sport will increase. So how do we promote participation? One major role of any NGB is to increase participation. Participation in its most basic form is simply taking part. A drive to increase participation affects all levels of performance, from grassroots through to an elite standard. NGBs must try to persuade people to play that particular sport so that they can progress through to higher standards. Some examples of how NGBs try to get people participating include the following. Providing equal opportunities, policies whereby all genders, religions, cultures and ages are invited and made welcome to take part. The intention is that there are no obvious barriers to any user group taking part. Increasing the popularity of the sport through the provision of further media attention, publicity campaigns and schemes for schools, e.g. working in partnership with the Youth Sports Trust and increasing exposure in the media, television, radio, newspaper, the internet, social media, etc, etc, so that more people are aware of the sport and what is happening in relation to the sport. And this can be done through press releases, public relations, community engagement uh, projects, or even just social media profiles. The next thing governing bodies look at is development. So it's another role of any NGB is to enable performers to develop, showing clear and targeted pathways or structured routes for performers to progress through. However, the role of an NGB is also to help develop coaches and officials as well as performers. And this can be done in three different ways. Number one, training and development for elite performers. So clearly there has to be a designated programme for performers to follow, to reach the top and to stay there. This includes national performance squads and national teams in most hockey, um, in most sports. And hockey was the one I was going to use an example for. So an example for hockey would be they'd start at development centres, they'd then move on to academy centres and then performance centres. We'd then go up to the Futures Cup 
Diploma in Sporting Excellence, a National Age Group Squads, Under-21 Development Programme, and then the Full England Squad. So that's starting right at the bottom and making your way up to be playing at an international level. Coaching Awards awards is the second way to develop um, through the NGB, so to develop the sport through a national governing body. So most NGBs have a level-based system of coaching awards for prospective coaches to work their way through. For example, England Netball uses the United Kingdom Coaching Certificate, the UKCC, and that's a scheme whereby coaches of 16 years and over can progress through a level one, a level two, and a level three coaching certificate. Level three coaching courses can cost up to £1,000 to complete um, and usually they must be completed in a minimum of 15 months or a maximum of three years. Sometimes through your sport, they might have enough funding to pay those fees for those people that want to become coaches. And training of officials is the third development. So most NGBs have a designated set of courses that officials can work their way through to become a top class official. The Rugby Football Union, the RFU, has a Young Officials Award, which can be used as a starting point to becoming an official for those aged 14 to 24. The RFU has a set of level-based awards that officials can work their way through, as well as more specific courses aimed at helping officials to officiate particular laws of the game. So for NGBs to um, develop their sports, they've got three ways they can do this. So they have training and development for elite performers, they put on some coaching awards, and they also train officials, so umpires, referees, etc, etc. The, another thing that the um, national governing bodies are responsible for is the infrastructure for their sports. So that refers to how competitions are organised, how leagues are administered, how rules are made, changed and administered, um, how disciplinary procedures are administered, how a strategy and direction for the sport are delivered, providing guidelines for all stakeholders and members and running and assisting with the development of facilities. So the NGBs, the national governing bodies, are also responsible for that within their sports. Competitions and tournaments. Um, NGBs organise competitions and leagues for different levels of competitions. However, they predominantly organise or have a say in the elite level leagues and administer the scheduling and officiating. One example is the FA. They organise the FA Cup competition, but act as a special shareholder for the Premier League. The Premier League is privately owned. So the FA has the ability to vote on specific issues relevant to the Premier League, but has no role in the day-to-day running of the actual league. England Basketball organises national competitions for over 500 teams from under 13 level all the way up to senior level. So those are examples of how the national governing bodies are responsible for competitions and tournaments. The other thing they're responsible for is rulemaking and disciplinary procedures. So the administration and decision making behind any rule changes varies from sport to sport. However, NGBs tend to have some role in the process within the country in which they operate. Football involves an eight-seat committee called the International Football Association Board. As four of the seats are held by FIFA, no rules can be changed without FIFA's approval. However, the English, Scottish, Welsh and Northern Irish FAs hold the other four seats and the committee meets once a year. Individual FAs can make certain judgments which affect their own clubs, for example, to use video assistant um, assistant referees, the VARs. Similarly, the World Rugby Executive, uh, Executive Committee decides any rule changes to rugby. The individual rugby NGBs ensure these rules are followed in their country. 
So there's a bit of a hierarchy system going on here. The varying NGBs administer any breaches of discipline or rule breaking and can result in fines or bans if necessary. For example, England Hockey provides detailed advice on their website about disciplinary procedures and ways that players can appeal against any disciplinary action. Something else they're responsible for is providing a national directive and vision. All governing bodies provide direction and vision for their sport in their country. Many use a strapline or branding logo. And some. Um, and here are some that I'm going to give you an example of. So England Hockey, Governing Body of the Year. England Table Tennis, Building Better Experiences. Lawn Tennis Association, here to help as many people as possible enjoy and get involved with tennis across the whole of Great Britain. Most NGB websites provide details about the national team, development teams, national campaigns and areas for development and vision. And vision refers to what the NGBs feel they are constantly focused on achieving. NGBs also provide guidelines, support and insurance to members. So NGBs tend to have an area on their website for official members. Within this area, members can access guidelines, support and information regarding insurance. Most NGBs have a partnership with insurance firms, endorsing their insurance products for their members. Many NGBs give advice as to what insurance is required for clubs, coaches, officials and players so that in the event of an injury occurring, legal protection is in place and also assisting with facility developments. So NGBs generally play some part in facility developments, whether that is at international level or grassroots club. Grassroots clubs sort of means um, amateur, the lowest level that you play the sport. As an example, the RAF owns Twickenham Stadium and is responsible for the maintenance and upkeep of the 82,000 seater facility. However, Twickenham also generates a lot of income for the RFU. On a similar scale, NGBs such as the RFU often play a part in helping clubs around the country to apply for funding to develop their facilities. Many sports requires uh, clubs to apply to Sport England through their Inspired Facilities Fund. However, it is generally the case that the facility development project needs to be endorsed by the NGB to be successful. The Rugby Football Foundation allows clubs to apply for small grants and loans up to £100,000. If successful, the club will manage the project themselves. Since 2003, the RFF has granted nearly £20 million to clubs in England. Policies and initiatives then. So this is something else that the governing bodies will take responsibility for. NGBs operate many policies and procedures which set the direction and vision of that sport in the country. For example, on the England Table Tennis website, there is a full section displaying its anti-doping policy. However, the website also provides information and the following additional policies and procedures. So here's some examples of policies and initiatives that the national governing bodies are responsible for. Customer care and complaints, disability awareness, disability plan, equality and diversity, equal opportunities, social media guidelines, a whistleblowing policy, diversity action plan, safeguarding, transgender guidelines. They're just some examples of policies and initiatives that the NGBs will have in place. 
So, anti-doping policies, NGBs will all have a section of the website devoted to anti-doping procedures and guidance. Anti-doping refers to procedures taken to prevent the use of prohibited performance-enhancing drugs. For example, the England and Wales Cricket Board website has an anti-doping policy and a list of all substances that are permitted and those that are banned. The British Gymnastics website has a section which details banned drugs, doping procedures for testing, advice on nutrition and supplements on what is acceptable as a therapeutic use exemption. Promoting etiquette and fair play. All NGBs aim to promote appropriate etiquette, sporting behaviour and fair play. For example, the Football Association's Respect campaign started in 2008. The intention was to improve the behaviour of coaches and parents to act as positive role models for those that are playing. The FA then also introduced We Only Do Positive, which aims to promote and educate coaches and parents on their important role in creating a fun, safe and inclusive environment for all of the players. NGBs are also responsible for community programmes. They tend to involve themselves in and promote community engagement programmes and this comprises trying to engage the community within their sport to encourage participation, fun and learning. For example, the Amateur Swimming Association's Swim Fit programme aims to engage members of the community to use an online coach to help them use swimming to shape up, get fit and complete a series of challenges. The Swim Fit programme also includes an area on the website to sign up for the Swim Buddy newsletter to learn about how other members of the community are doing. The Football Association takes part in many community projects. For an example, sees the FA team up with fast food chain McDonald's in a programme called Community Football Days. These days are hosted by a county football association or club coach and create opportunities for those at a grassroots level to take part in sports. As communities get more involved in sports, so participation rates increase and the health and fitness of the community improves. This then has a knock-on effect of a more productive, healthy and happy nation, which reduces the strain on the National Health Service, the NHS. And then NGBs must also provide information and guidance on safeguarding. Now, safeguarding is the action taken to protect the welfare of children and protect them from harm. With many high-profile cases of abuse emerging from different sports, NGBs have a large role to play in ensuring appropriate advice is given to ensure the safeguarding of children. As an example, British Rowing has stated guiding principles for safeguarding. Everyone who participates in rowing is entitled to do so in a safe and enjoyable environment. All British Rowing Clubs, competitions and associated individuals must follow the policies defined in their policy documents. British Rowing is committed to helping everyone in rowing accept their responsibility to safeguard children and vulnerable adults from harm and abuse. And there are procedures in place that show the steps to be followed to ensure that children and vulnerable adults are protected that concerns are reported, listened to and acted on appropriately. We also need to talk about funding. So um, as well as the main considerations such as overseeing rules, working with clubs and coaches and organising competitions, national governing bodies also decide how to spend income that is generated. So it's called lobby for and receive funding. NGBs have to lobby for, basically present an argument that seeks to influence another's decision. Um, they lobby for funding from the Department of Digital Culture, Media and Sport. Government funding levels are not guaranteed and the Department of Digital Culture, Media and Sport can alter the amount of funding that NGBs receive. NGBs have to present their arguments to the government of the need for funding and how it will be spent. Although government funds provide a large amount of NGB's income, they are also funded through different sources. So it could be money from grants, 
membership fees from NGB members, lottery funding, money from TV rights and private partnerships, money from sponsorship, money from private donations, money from merchandise sold, money from admission to costs and tickets sold, and also some fundraising activities. Also needs to provide members with advice advice about funding. So NGB websites tend to include advice to performers in that particular sport and how to apply for funding. Lawn Tennis Association provides members with details about the various funding sources available. The very highest level players who play internationally can apply to receive a 12-month funding agreement, which includes access to high-quality coaches and the use of National Tennis Centre. The LTA which is the Lawn Tennis Association, also provides information about other funding streams for players, which include the 2019 Pro Scholarship Funding, the 2018 National Age Group Funding, LTA Sports Science and Medicine Funding, Players for Grants for Official Trips. And then the final thing that you need to know about national governing bodies is support. So national governing bodies provide other forms of support via their website and administration teams. Information can be given over the phone via NGB helplines, but is also available online. So technical advice, that refers to advice on equipment, venues and surfaces. Um, NGBs will provide technical support in many forms. This could be advice on playing equipment, advice on what is and what is not allowed, um, and advice on playing surfaces. And they generally provide location and contact details for local clubs to help those attending or playing to find out how to get there. This is often in a directory and subdivided into regions or counties. NGBs play a large part in encouraging participation. And one aspect of this is providing information on how to get started in the sport itself. So that could be finding out about where your local club is, what age range is catered for, and when starter events are being held, for example. Um, and so that is it for um, learning objective four, knowing about the role of national body, governing bodies in sport. So what you should be able to do at this stage is state three major roles of sporting national governing bodies, describe how NGBs are generally funded, what is meant by the term safeguarding, give one example of a community engagement project offered by a national governing body, and describe how the rules of football are decided and administered. And if you are struggling with those sort of know it statements, then please do rewind, go back over this segment and make sure you're fully clued up on NGBs, the national governing bodies. And so there we have it. That is um, RO51, Contemporary Issues in Sport, the unit that looks at the exam papers. Um, In a nutshell, we have got through that. Um, I hope you've enjoyed listening and I hope you've got something from this podcast and that it's just a different way to uh, for you to revise in preparation for your exam. So just in a bit of a recap, remember that there are four learning outcomes for this unit. There's learning outcome one, to understand the issues which affect participation in sports. Learning outcome two, know about the role of sport in promoting values. Learning outcome three, understand the importance of hosting major sporting events. Learning outcome four, to know about the role of national governing bodies in sports. And remember, you are going to be assessed within a written paper which is set and marked by OCR the paper is one hour long and worth 60 marks during the external assessment 
You'll be expected to demonstrate your understanding through questions that do require analysis and evaluation in particular contexts. So let's just do a quick run through of those learning objectives. So for learning objective one, you need to have knowledge and understanding of the different user groups who may participate in sport, the barriers these groups face to participation, solutions to these barriers, the factors which can impact upon the popularity of sport within the UK, how the factors which can impact upon the popularity of sport in the UK relate to specific, uh, specific sporting examples, current trends in the popularity of different sports in the UK and growth of new and emerging sports and activities for the UK. For learning objective two, you need to have a knowledge and understanding of values which can be promoted through sport, the Olympic and Paralympic movements, other initiatives and events which promote values through sport, the importance of etiquette and sporting behaviour of both performers and spectators, the use of performance enhancing drugs in sport. For learning objective three, you need to have a knowledge and understanding of the features of major sporting events, the potential benefits and drawbacks of cities and countries hosting major sporting events, the links between potential benefits and drawbacks and also legacy. And finally, for learning objective four, you need to have a knowledge and understanding of what governing bodies in sport do and governing body promotion, development, infrastructure, policies and initiatives, funding and support. Now, if you want to um, do some past papers in preparation, then they are they're on a website which you can get hold of and that is the OCR website so it's www.ocr.org.uk forward slash qualifications forward slash Cambridge dash nationals forward slash sport dash studies dash level dash one dash two dash j813 forward slash assessment and there you'll be able to look at some samples and past papers which will um, be really helpful for your assessment like always if you have any other questions or you are feeling a little bit anxious or concerned about the exam then you can contact any one of the peeves, uh, members of staff you can come and see us in the p office you can email us or you can contact us on teams and we will get back to you and um, endeavour to help you as much as we possibly can. But for now, all I want to say is good luck, prepare and revise well, and you've got this year 10. You've really, really got this. Good luck, guys. <laughs>